as we continue to worship our awesome God, uh, let's open up in prayer. Father God, we just thank you so much for this chance that we have to worship you, to just lift up your name up high. Uh, Lord, this is not just a time when a man just stands up here and talks for a little bit, but Lord, this is our worship. And Lord, I pray that indeed you are glorified and that you are honored. And Lord, I can't do this on my own. So by your spirit, Lord, will you empower me to do this, to glorify your name? Will you use this sermon, Lord, to bring glory to your name, to joy to your people and salvation to loss? And amen. As we continue on in our sermon series, as we look in the gospel of John, if you have your Bibles with you, please open them to John chapter 5. We're starting in verse 31, going all the way to the end of the chapter, verse 47. As we look at Jesus and continuing on in this narrative, as he made these bold claims uh, a couple of weeks ago, of making himself equal with God the Father. And these are exciting things. And as, as we see Jesus begin to expose who he is more and more as we build up to a very climactic thing, which is his death and his resurrection later on in John. But right now, we are looking at John chapter 5, verses 31. We're going all the way to 47. If you have your Bibles with you, which I hope you do, uh, please open them up and we'll be starting at verse 31 of chapter 5. The word of the Lord says this. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me. And I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works of the Father has given me to accomplish the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you. For you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people. But I know that I do, uh, sorry, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings... How will you believe my words? This is the word of the Lord. Let me ask you this question. Who is the person in your life that you value the most, uh, their opinion the most? Who, who's, who is it? When you close your eyes, when you think about it, who is that opinion? Maybe it's your mom, your dad, or a good friend of yours, a dashing young pastor, who knows? Who is that person that comes to mind, that opinion that you 
cherish the most. When we were looking to buy a house uh, we, here in London, we were looking in all over the place. But one of the people that I made sure that we brought with us, what my wife and I, Stephanie, made sure that we brought with us was our father-in-law. My father-in-law is a carpenter by trade. He's built homes. He understands homes. And in the market, as many as you know here, if you're not jumping on a house very quickly, you don't have time to go and call the inspector to come on in. We, I valued his opinion a lot when it came to looking for a house for my family and I to move into, to purchase together. Opinions matter. And they actually, how we view uh, someone, how we seek their opinion actually shapes our actions. Our opinions do shape our actions. Just like how my opinion of my father-in-law shaped the house in which we were to buy, it goes with anything. Think about all the advice that you've ever asked someone as you seek their opinion. You value their opinion and the decision that came out of that opinion. Our opinions of people actually dictate our actions. And it's true. It comes through. And here as we look at this passage, we are faced with a question today. Whose opinion do you want the most? Whose opinion affects you the most? Because in here we see two people and two opinions that are coming to the, to, to the surface. See, Jesus calls witnesses because he knows that the critics that he has facing him right now do not believe who he is he is. So let's recap a little bit about what has happened so far in just John chapter 5. See, John chapter 5, Jesus comes and he heals the lame man by the pool. He heals him. Just by a word, he speaks, and he says, get up, and he gets up, and he walks away. An amazing story, amazing testimony of who Jesus is, because who else can make the lame lame walk? Only but God. But here's the problem. Jesus comes along, and he does it on the Sabbath, the day of rest, a day where people weren't supposed to pick up their bed and walk. So out of that, the religious leaders and the Jewish people become, they hunt him down, they find him, they say, well, who are you to do this? And Jesus himself says, I am equal with the Father. And the Father keeps working, so I'm going to keep working. Because they've lost the idea of what the Sabbath was for. And not only that, but they lost sight of who God is. And as we continue to walk through, Jesus now, as a criticism, you can probably feel the tension within the scene. The, 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 the tension is rising. They still do not believe who he is. So now Jesus, you can picture a court of law. So now Jesus comes and he brings forth witnesses to validate the claim of who he is. It's mind-boggling to me that the one who has done all of these things still had to prove who he was. Well, that's for another day. In verse 31, he says, If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. He doesn't even come to say things about himself. He doesn't come as a witness of himself. He says, here's a list of other people. Here's a list of other things that testify of who I am and what I've done. And he begins to break them down. He starts with John the Baptist as a witness. Because John the Baptist comes and he points to who he is. John said in in, in chapter 1, verse 33, that it is Jesus who will baptize in the Holy Spirit. 
that the Father sent Jesus, and that believing the one who sent Jesus delivers them from judgment. Those are things that John the Baptist actually said. John the Baptist, as we have looked at the Gospel of John earlier, we have seen that John is very explicit as saying, I am not the Messiah, but he is. He always points to Jesus Christ. He always proclaims, I am the one who comes to prepare the way for the one who is to come. That is who John is. John is a witnessing, even in the presence, but even in this, as Jesus talks of who he is and what he has done. John was the light that pointed to Christ's radiant glory. He was the lamp. He was the lamp. And he, didn't, and he even further, as I said, he denies the title of the Messiah and identifies Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The only one who can take away the sins of the world. But let's be clear, right? As we read earlier on in verse 41, let us be very clear. Jesus is neither authenticated by the Baptist, John the Baptist's witness, nor made glorious by the light of his lamp. Jesus is authentic, and he is glorious, regardless of whatever the witness is. So John isn't the only one, though. John isn't the only one that comes that Jesus brings forth as a, as a witness of who he is. John actually, Jesus begins to bring even more people. He says, look, look at my works. Look at the things I've done. Look how I've made the lame walk and the blind see, and I've healed the sick. What do Jesus' works show us about who he is and what he has done for us? Why do you go to one manufacturer over another? Why, why do you buy a specific brand or, or, over another? Well, because their works have proven who they are and that it's worth your investment. Jesus comes and he says, look at my works. Look at what I've done. Look at who I am. See how my works point to who I am. But not only do they point to who I am, but who has sent me. As we looked at last week, the Father gives the Son work. And the Son does only what the Father tells him to do. So Jesus comes and he points to his works. Everything he does tells of who he is and who the Father is, is, is all that matters. And he just points. He says, look at what I'm doing. Look at what I've done. Look at, look at all of these things. Unless those who are listening to Jesus can explain the miracles away, they have to believe that Jesus is the one who he says he is. But here's the thing. Nowhere do we see these people trying to explain away Jesus' works. They actually acknowledge them. We see that. We see that in John chapter 5 with Jesus raising the man from, uh, not raising the man from, but making the man walk. He, they don't ever question, hey, I didn't, you were clearly faking it for 40 odd years. They don't ever question it. Their question is, is who did this to you? And I think this is a reminder to us as well as we're looking at this, as Jesus begins to call these witnesses to you and I today as he proclaims who he is, that he is indeed the one who can take away the sins of the world, that he is indeed God. Nowhere, those who are closest to him, none of his closest enemies at all questioned what he did. I think for us, if you're a skeptic, I would, I would encourage you strongly 
to not do the same, or to do the same, to not question. So Jesus has called, he's called, he's called John the Baptist. He's called in, he's, he's pointed to his works. He says, look at my works. Look at all that they've done. Look at all the things I've done. But in his works, he also brings in God the Father as his witness. And this is the greatest witness that he will bring. God the Father comes. Because the Father has sent him. That's what he's talking about in verses 37 to 38. From all the works that have happened... Look at them. All the works that Jesus has done, he has only done because the Father has told him to do them. But also about all of what the Bible has talked about, from Genesis and the Pentateuch, all of it talks about Jesus and prepares people for him. But also let's think about the Spirit and the Holy Spirit. In Matthew 3, we see Jesus being baptized by John the Baptist. And what happens out of that is the Holy Spirit comes upon him like a dove. And what do they hear from heaven? This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. The Father, God the Father is testifying that he has sent Jesus Christ. And Jesus comes and says, you heard it too. You heard it too. Not only have you, at one point, were excited to have John the Baptist come. Not only were you excited about that, but also you've seen me do these things. But also you heard God approve of me, God the Father. This is who I am. This is who I am. Ever, have you ever given your word and no one believe you? See, Jesus comes here. And, and Jesus bases his whole claim on the integrity of the Father. It's amazing. And here, those who are listening, his skeptics, his critics, aren't even taking God the Father's word. So the question that I come up as I study this passage is, is well, whose opinion do they value the most? Who are they valuing the most as they look at these things? Because clearly it's not John the Baptist. Clearly it's not the works of Jesus. And clearly it's not God the Father. And as we'll see, God the Father even uses the, the word of God to talk about it. Because, God, because the scriptures are a witness. In Luke 24, 27, Jesus actually comes along after he's resurrected on the road with his disciples who we don't know about. And he says, and in the beginning with Moses and all the prof prophets, sorry, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. See, the entire Bible, and I said this before, the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation is ultimately about Jesus. It points to Jesus. Throughout scripture, God is unfolding his grace and it culminates, it, it builds up to Jesus. The Bible is not about what we do for God, but what God has done for us. This is what we see. We have to understand this. No part of the gospel says anything about how I can work hard enough in order to win favor with God. The gospel is entirely about how God has done everything for me. The Bible actually clearly says that I was born a sinner, that you were born a sinner. And not only were you born a sinner, but all of your actions are sinning. You're completely a sinner. 
You are an enemy of God. You have, cre- you have done treason against the holy God, creator of the universe. That should bring fear and trembling into your hearts. And if it doesn't, the only other option is you should be amazed by the amazing grace God has poured out on you. That you do not face that judgment. Because through Jesus Christ, the Bible is very clear that even though we were born this way, that even though we were sinners, that we sinned against a holy God, that our right punishment is hell itself. The Bible is very clear about this, that eternal hell forever is our due right punishment. It is our right, our only right. But Jesus Christ steps down from his throne so that anyone who confesses with their mouth that Jesus Christ is both Lord and Savior, that anyone repents so they turn from that sin, that worship of that sin, to the worship of a holy God and believe, rest, lean into the promises of God will be saved. That's the gospel. And that's what the Bible clearly says. And that's, what the, and that's what the witness that Jesus begins to call for us. But not only that, Jesus even points to how Moses, in the Bible, testifies and witnesses and prophesies of Jesus Christ. The first five books of the Bible are the Pentateuch, And they testify of Jesus Christ. In verse 39, Jesus points to a whole string of promises that begin in Genesis 3.15, where God promises that the Son of Man will crush the head of the serpent. That's Jesus. And that's what Jesus accomplishes on the cross. We see even in, in Genesis 5, where God will bring relief We see in Genesis 12 and onward with Abraham and the promises that God has poured out on his people through picking a man named Abraham. I don't think we understand the ramifications of what God has done just with Abraham. One of his gods speaks, which means he was a pagan. And God chooses him. He's a sinner, just like you and like me. But God chose him. And called him out of his land and made him into a special people. He did not do anything at all to deserve that. But Jesus keeps pointing to what the word of God says. He talks about in Numbers 14, 27 and also Deuteronomy 18. And many other points that Jesus is implying when he talks about Moses and how Moses spoke and testified of who he is. But then Jesus comes and says, you don't believe Moses. You do not believe him. Audacious claim that Jesus gives to these people. Ah, what do you mean we don't? Uh, what do we? What, what? What? You can kind of hear the mumbling going on, the, the, the stumbling over their voices, and, and they're like, "What's going on? What, what do you mean we don't? We don't obey Moses. We obey all ten commandments and all the six hundred other rules that go along with it. We obey Moses." And Jesus says, no, no, you don't. Because if you did believe Moses, you would believe me. Because this is who I am. See, Jesus' final witness is the Bible, is the scriptures. 
And these people, they were pouring over the Old Testament, trying to extract the fullest possible meaning from its words because they believed that the very study itself would bring them life. And they've completely missed the point that it's not the Bible that brings life, but Jesus Christ, because the Bible testifies of Jesus and what he has done for us. See, the problem is is that they've missed the chief subject of the Old Testament revelation. All of that study, and they completely missed the point. It's like they studied all for months for 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 an end-of-the-semester exam or a midterm or a finals, let's say a final exam in, in university, and the teacher says, what's this class about? And you studied, you studied so hard, and you write the test, and you answer that question. This class is about... And you get it back and they say, you missed the point. Think about these things that they missed because they were more concerned with the opinions of others rather than God. And he rebukes his hearers for their inconsistency in studying the Bible so diligently while rejecting the very claims of who Jesus is. The very claims that the word of God says about who he is and what he has done for us. The prophecies from Genesis all the way up till then that testified of how a man would be born of a virgin. He would have nothing fancy about himself. He would grow up and he would die like a lamb led to the slaughter. He would not come as a military ruler. He would come as a sacrifice to pay the price for sin. And they missed the points. We must believe the testimony of Jesus to have life that he gives. Why are all of these things written? And John says this in John 20, verse 31. But there, these are written, he says, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. All of these things, all of these things that Jesus is talking about in John 5 are written so that we may believe. But the question still I have is, is why aren't these people listening? Why aren't they? Why aren't they believing all of the witnesses that are coming here and and Jesus presents to them? Witnesses that they know already. They have poured over the Bible. If they're religious leaders, they were born in church and they will die in church. They know the Bible. You know what? As a youth pastor, one of the most pain in the behind people to teach were kids who grew up in the church because they think they know it all. They're worse than just the regular teenagers that think they know they all, know it all. But they think they know it all, and they don't. And Jesus is very similar going, you don't get it. You're missing the point from John the Baptist to, to my works, to God the Father, to the word of God that you hold so dear. They all point to one person, and that person is me. I am the one that has life. And you reject me. And not only are you rejecting me, but because you reject me, you don't even believe the words that you say you believe. Because those words point to me. But why? Why would they do that? In verses 44 to 47, we see that life that Jesus gives. So let me ask you, with all of these testimonies, why do people 
fail to believe what Jesus is talking about here. In verse 44, Jesus comes and says, How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Jesus just smacks him right in the face. He doesn't even hold it back. And he can feel the building tension as Jesus begins to reveal himself more and more about who he is that ultimately leads to the cross where he pays the price for my sin and your sin. This is who he is. They are more concerned with the glory they receive from people than that of God and can't see that it's Jesus who gives life. They don't care. Ultimately, they still think that they can hustle hard enough in order to get into heaven, in order to win favor with God. I just need to obey all of these rules and I'm good to go. But it's not the rules that give life. It's Jesus Christ's. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one, no one comes to the Father except through him. Verse 45, it comes along and it says this, Do not think, as he says, that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses. You know that guy that you're kind of holding on to, that you're kind of really loving? You know that guy that thinks that you think that if you follow close enough, if you follow close enough that rule that you're going to be made right before God, you know that rule, rule, you know that guy? He's going to accuse you. He's going to accuse you. And in fact, that's what Romans talks about. Romans, the Apostle Paul in Romans talks about how the law condemns because we can't keep the law. We can't. If someone comes to me and says, I'm a good person, you might be a good person, but I bet you at least lusted at one point or wanted something that you couldn't want or took the Lord's name in vain. And for the record, Lord's name in vain means to take honor away from him. So anytime that you've taken honor away from God, you've sinned and broken the commandment. It's not just a swear word. You've got to stop thinking that way. Yes, it could be a swear word. But it's far deeper than that. When have you taken honor away from God? and put it to something else? When have you sought satisfaction in something rather than God? Well, then you made that thing an idol. And, and, and Jesus comes and says, the very person, the very words, are the ones that are going to condemn you. See, the people who were listening, the whole hope was based on their obedience. And as I said before, obedience doesn't win favor with God. Obedience comes out of a heart that's already been changed by the grace of God. I obey because I desire, because I desire to please my Father. I obey because of a changed heart. And sometimes, let's be real, Frank, sometimes I don't like it, but I do it. So to reject Jesus was to reject Moses because Moses points to Jesus and who he is and what he has done. They don't even believe Moses who testified him. Jesus tells them that they aren't interpreting the Bible that they have poured over for so long because they're not interpreting it right because they're not seeing the promises that are fulfilled in Jesus. There is unbelief there. So let me ask you this today. Let me ask you this today. Who are you seeking approval of? 
Who, who do you approve of? Who, whose opinion are you the one that matters the most to you? Because as we look at this passage, we see a pr- group of people who were so distraught at Jesus because they were so enthralled at seeking the opinion of one another rather than the opinion of God. Whoever you are seeking the approval of love is who you are seeking to be satisfied by. To disbelieve Jesus is to not to have life. If you want to know God, you have to believe his testimony. There is no way around it. But if you want to also believe you, you need to know who you are believing, and that is Jesus Christ. In Christ, you are called to be a disciple. A disciple is someone who is learning Christ. He's a Christ learner. They are studying the Bible and seeking to be more like the one who saved them. So what do we do with all this? If you want to know God, you have to believe his testimony. So who opinions matters to you the most? Close your eyes again. Who's the opinion you, you, who, who matters the most? I keep asking myself this myself. Why didn't the people believe? Jesus lays it out. In fact, they don't even argue against any of his statements. Not one do they argue against. Why don't they believe? I bet people can look at your life. I bet people can look at your life and, and actually tell you who you think, who you think is the most important opinion. See, to grow in faith, our opinion of God must eclipse the opinion of human, humans. In order to grow in faith, our opinion must eclipse the opinion of other humans. And how does this happen? We should believe Jesus. We should believe Jesus and, and, and seek to know him more and to believe the testimony, the witnesses that he has as he points to people like John the Baptist who proclaimed the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. As he, as he sits there and looks at his works and he says, who else could do all of these things? As we, as we look at the, 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 how God the Father testifies of who he is, as he brings into the word of God, we need to believe who Jesus is. It's through Jesus that has life. And if we want to grow in faith, our opinion of God must eclipse that of other humans. See, we live in a time where truth is increasingly relative, if you've noticed, right? It it doesn't matter. Everyone says, oh, believe me, uh, this is true. This is true. You can hear people saying all the time, oh, that's that's your truth. That's your truth. Or you got to speak your truth. You got to speak your truth, brother, sister, preach it. People are hesitant to declare interpretations to be right or wrong. What Jesus says about the interpretations of the Old Testament plants a flag that his reading is the true one, the right one. And the objection to his interpretation is damnable rebellion. Jesus comes and he's very clear as to who he is and what he has done. The opponents of Jesus take the word of honor given by men, but reject the one who comes in the name of the Father. 
Their opinion of God brings them to reject the one who could give them life, the one who could save them from their sins. So let me ask you this question. Whose opinion is determinative in your life? The opinions of other people or the opinions of God? Do we live to please man or do we live to please God? Look, we are entering into a time where this, I find myself asking this question more and more and more. Who am I more concerned with? Because there will become a time when I'm going to have to make a decision on whose opinion I care about the most. Humans, man, or God. In fact, it happens all the time. It happens as I walk down the street and, you know, I have the choice to, to act in a certain way. Uh, any decision I ever make, who do I, whose opinion do I matter, matters the most in my life? If your opinion of God is based on who he says he is, then your opinions will eclipse all other opinions. If you want to be satisfied, you need to be anchored to the sure and steady anchor of Jesus Christ. His opinion needs to eclipse the opinions of others. That only happens as you know who he is. If you want a joy that is felt regardless of your circumstances, then know Christ and know him more. If you want to listen to his voice rather than others, know Christ more. If you want a satisfaction that isn't based on the ebbs and flow of our world, who need to, you need to grow in your faith. We need to trust the promises of God. What are you placing your hope in? What are you seeking to be satisfied in? To grow in faith, and to grow in faith, your opinion of God has to eclipse your opinion of humanity. And may we be that as a church. May we encourage one another. May we, that's why we gather together, to remind each other of who God is and what he has done for us through his son, Jesus Christ, so that we can be reminded again of who our identity is in Christ and whose, mat, whose opinion matters the most. Because we could lose everything. You could lose family, friends, everything for the sake of Christ. But if Christ's opinion matters the most... It won't matter. I'm not saying it won't hurt, but God's opinion will eclipse. Let us continue to worship our awesome God together. Father God, we thank you so much for who you are and what you have done for us. Lord, may we continue to praise you and worship your name. Lord, we live in an ever-confusing world, and things are hard. Lord, I just pray that we would be individuals, that we would be a church that continue to seek your opinion above all things and how we live our lives and how we talk and how we care for one another as we reach out to one another, as we, as we proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. May, our, may your opinion eclipse all other opinions because you are the source of life. Where else will we go? May you be glorified and honored. And amen.